of the crime, a crime of passion filmed in a way you have never seen before, and as no one else would dare attempt, but the screen's master of suspense, the producer-director who shocked the world with... This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. For instance, down there on the second floor, the woman pacing about. He calls her Miss Lonely Hearts. So lonely that even death seems like a friend. These are the newlyweds on a honeymoon no one will ever forget. He calls her Miss Hearing Aid, an artist of a very odd and strange art. The songwriter who plays the same melody over and over again. This is the traveling salesman and his invalid wife. Out of their arguments and nagging comes a weird kind of love. Miss Torso, the body beautiful, that is, viewed from a safe distance. Those are just a few of my neighbors. First I watched them just to kill time, but then I couldn't take my eyes off them, just as you won't be able to. And you won't be able to take your eyes off the glowing beauty of Grace Kelly, who shares the heart and curiosity of James Stewart in this story of a romance shadowed by the terror of a horrifying secret. Welcome to episode 16 of Film Gold, and this is the first appearance on the podcast of, well, two people. First of all, Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, that wasn't quite what I was about to say anyway. But also the first appearance on Film Gold of Matt Williamson from the Pop Goes the 60s YouTube channel. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Thanks for having me on your podcast as well, on your YouTube channel. Can you introduce your channel? I know it's not film, it's actually music, but um, tell us about that. Yeah, so Pop Goes the 60s is my YouTube channel, and it's a focus on 60s music uh, with uh, a focus, I guess you would say, on the Beatles. But it's also 60s pop culture, so I do venture into films a little bit, but it's mainly music. And I, there is a little overflow of that 60s decade into the 70s and into the 50s as well, occasionally. Yeah. So this is somewhat within the pale. Fantastic channel, by the way. Not just saying that because I've been on there. No, it's a Thank really, you. really good channel. I'm becoming very popular as well. When I was on there, yeah, I couldn't believe the number of comments, hundreds of them. Yeah, people, uh, they like to get involved in this, these discussions, I think, um, which is, I think, why podcasts are so popular now. Absolutely, yeah, they're massive, aren't they? 
More competition, unfortunately, for me. But I've got three. I've hedged my bets a bit. Anyway, so the film today is Rear Window from 1954, Alfred Hitchcock, as I said. What's your relationship with Hitchcock and with this film in particular? I mean, how many times have you seen it? When was the first time Mm -hmm. you can remember? Well, one of the things I say about this film, whenever I'm asked what is my favorite anything, I usually don't have an answer. But if you ask me my favorite film, I say Rear Window, and I've been saying that since I was 20 years old. I saw it first when I, I must have been about 19, and I got into this Hitchcock phase in college, and it just, I just started watching old films. Much like I listen to older music, my decade for music is more of the 60s, but my decade for film would be 40s and 50s. And as a child, the Technicolor films were shown on Sunday afternoons, and I remember that being kind of a backdrop of my life, much like AM radio was a backdrop in many of our lives. So I... I as a college student, I just it, Hitchcock was extremely easy to fall in love with, and I started to just eat up all of his films. What are the other ones that you'd put up there with his best? Well, I would say Notorious, North by Northwest, The Birds, Rope. I would say Vertigo is just a work of art on epic proportional levels, <laughs> so that's another one. Strangers on a Train is a big one for me. Mm-hmm. I love that one. I guess all his films have themes, but I like the ones that have those really quite overt themes. And we'll get to it, but obviously this film has a very, very clear theme. A few, really, but one that really leaps out. What are the other films from the 40s and 50s, non-Hitchcock, that you'd say are up there with your favourites as well? Yeah, well, I'm a big film noir fan. The reason that is, I mean, as opposed to Hitchcock, which is such a British point of view although he was very Americanized in the 50s. Uh, the film noir is kind of the dark underbelly of American culture, you know, post-World War II. So, you know, uh, the movies like Maltese Falcon, Out of the Past, Laura, some of those early Kubrick films, I really am into those quite heavily. Yeah, there's a film called The Killing by Kubrick, if you know that one. Love it. I need to plan right now, but <laughs> we could, uh, <laughs> could well end up doing that one. All right, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. I'll just describe the um, opening scene. So um, we get this jazzy, very upbeat score. We get this scan of the courtyard, this incredible set. And uh, I was watching something last night, and I won't repeat everything they said because it was too much to go into, but it was incredibly elaborate, and it Mm. just works fantastically well. And then we get all these characters. You know, we get Miss Torso, we get the songwriter, we get the newlyweds, we get Miss Lonely Heart, the salesman and his wife, and then we get the couple with a dog who sort of provide both the comedy and the tragedy in the end. And then Hitchcock does this very economical thing where we see, we'll call him Jeff, Helby Jeffries, James Stewart, with his broken leg, and then we see photos of the accident because we find out he was photographing, I think it was a racetrack, Mm. a race. And, of course, he is us through the film. You know, we get his uh, POV shots. I'll just go quickly through the actors. So James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Thelma Ritter, who is um, Stella. Wendell Corey is the detective and then raymond burr of course famously pre perry mason what do you think about these uh the characters we see yeah so the characters across the courtyard it almost film buffs may recognize this as almost a silent film that you're watching across the courtyard you faintly hear some of what they're saying and you can make out some of the words but oftentimes you're just viewing like little silent movies in each window and uh, I think Hitchcock does a wonderful job of setting those characters up. And he does it with comedy as well. Obviously, we do hear them speaking, but we don't hear them speaking to him. Correct. Other than uh, Lars Thorwald. And uh, the set you mentioned, I think this is one of the greatest sets ever made. 
it's very difficult to show as much as they did from this, the viewpoint of Jimmy Stewart's rear window because we really don't ever leave that room. And you have to see everything from that perspective. One other thing i like to mention, you had mentioned the opening. One of the great things about Hitchcock is he tells the story of L.B. Jeffries laying there in the cast, and he just pans around the room, and you can it tells you why he's in the cast, how he got the broken leg, and what his profession is, all in a very long pan of his inside of his apartment, which is incredible filmmaking, I think. What they might have done in a modern film is they might have had him... I mean, you do hear him talking to his boss, but they might have done it where he would have had a really obvious conversation where he would have mentioned all these things. So they kind of avoided that. Like mm-hmm. you said, we get a quick scan. I did find out just watching a couple of documentaries that they did actually plan to film a scene in his boss's office. Oh, uh, yeah. But very wisely decided against it because, of course, we need to be in this courtyard the whole time. You know, that's, yes. that's the whole point of a limited setting film. It doesn't really work if you, suddenly you're in the office for no reason. So yeah, it's yeah, it's really clever, and I like uh, they have uh, so they cut to his leg, and someone's off. Someone's written here lie the broken bones of L.B. Jeffries. So there's a bit of humour throughout, and one of the first characters we meet is um, Stella, who's the nurse, who I think is a wonderful character, and I'm sure I've seen Thelma Ritter in many other films, but I just can't. Yes, her first her first film was um, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. She was already older. But she's a famous scene stealer, similar character in every film, but she's always, uh, she can deliver a line like nobody's business. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So she plays this, I guess, working class. She kind of identifies that, that. She says, you know, maladjusted misfit or not very educated or something like that. Mm-hmm. But she's got a nice line in Homespun Wisdom. And I like the line where she quotes something in James Stewart's, yeah, yeah, that was Reader's Digest, you know, mm-hmm. 1939 or something. It's a good banter between them. But there's this interesting thing where she says um, she predicted the Wall Street crash because she was nursing the head of General Motors. And because his blood pressure was up or whatever it was, she predicted that something was going to happen. I love that idea. And then she uh, makes a really interesting point. She says something about when I met my husband, you know, in my day, we just met someone we liked and we got together. You know, we didn't sit around analyzing each other. So it's interesting. I I think if, if you look at any point of history or any film, they'll always be talking about the modern age about how life is going faster, you know what I mean? And, um, I mean, when there was the 100th anniversary of the Titanic disaster, someone bought me the original papers. I mean, not the original copies of the original papers. And in there, they were talking about the pace of modern life. We've always been talking about that. It's not just now, you know? Mm-hmm. And she says, we become a race of peeping Toms. So um, do you think we've become a race of peeping Toms? Very much so now. I mean, look at in really the turn of the century, 21st century, when all the reality, so-called reality TV kicked in. Now it's, it's, it's not that it's reality, but people want to see other people's lives and they'll tune into it <laughs> and watch it for hours. Yeah, because another theme of this film actually is people watching other people's lives, but not really getting involved in them. Yeah. You know, Jeff would say he's got an excuse because he's got a broken leg, so he can't move. But um, I do like that theme. And then we'll get to it later with the the lady whose dog dies. She has a very telling speech to the rest of the neighbors, but uh, we'll get there. So then we get Lisa, we get Grace Kelly. And I guess another theme of the film is that Jeff is obviously an adventurer. You know, he lives on his wits. I guess he's unmaterialistic. He doesn't accumulate possessions. And Lisa, she works for a fashion magazine. Is that right? Yes, I believe yeah. so. There's one line where he says, don't you ever have any problems? She's perfect, you know, but she's too perfect for him almost. 
What do you think about this interesting thing they do where uh, she's competing for his attention with the neighbours? Did you notice that? Yes. As Stuart starts to really get more involved in what his neighbours are doing, mm. it's almost like um, what we just alluded to, you know, people, you know, we become a race of peeping toms. It's, it's contagious. It's almost yeah. compulsive to watch the actions of somebody else when you know that they don't know you're watching. Yeah. So I, I think in many ways her perfection is predictable to him and what's out in the courtyard is not predictable. And that's what draws his interest. Yeah. As beautiful as Grace Kelly is, and that's maybe, she's maybe too beautiful for him. That may be one of the problems with this film. It's minor, but uh, her beauty is so great. You know, she's Grace Kelly. And yet he's like, not that interested. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's a little bit unbelievable? People have said that to me yeah. as an issue with the movie, that it's not believable that she would be with him. He's not attractive enough. I think actually his profession may be a little bit too rugged for her. Yeah, I don't know. It's not the focus. I think there's a class element because I think we can kind of say that she's upper class. Stella is very working class. This would be a huge, much huger in, in, in an English film, let me tell you about. Of course, the director is English. Mm -hmm. Jeff, I guess, I don't know, middle class maybe, let's say. So maybe there's an idea that different classes just don't mix. I think yeah. she likes the fact that he is rugged. And, um, well, not only that, but he's a creative as well. So he's a top photographer who plays by his own rules, and he's the best in his class, really. So there's an attraction there, I think, as well. Yeah. How old do you think he's supposed to be? That's a good question, because so 19, you know, 1954 is the film, so Stuart would have been in his later 40s. You know, he's probably supposed to be early 40s. I don't know. The way people relate to him, he's almost, he seems a lot younger, but then he looks, he definitely looks 45 or whatever he is. Yeah, he, um, James Stewart reached a point in about 53, 52, when he, he started to look older. Mm -hmm. He could play a younger guy prior to that, but then, you know, age just started to catch up with him a little bit. Yeah, because when they're having the, one of those conversations about their life, she basically intimates that he should leave the magazine and she can get him fashion assignments. Yeah. And I can see that, I could see that that would not work at all. The fact that she would even suggest that shows the chasm between them, and maybe the age is part of that. You know, she says, I'm not the girl I thought I was. She knows she's beautiful and she knows she's from a cut of a, from a certain cloth mm. and she still can't get them. Yeah. All right. We'll kind of move through the plot in a general way. So he starts watching the neighbors with uh, amusement. I think we get lulled into a bit of a false sense of security because at the beginning it's just, it's mostly amusing and there's little bits of humor here and there. But gradually he's just watching these dramas, you know, playing out in their lives. So we see the salesman, which is obviously Raymond Burr, goes out in the rain with his sample case, and then suddenly Jeff has got binoculars and the long lens. He's got the long lens out. Yes. Again, he's saying, you know, I'm a photographer. He's got an excuse, I suppose. And then Stella says, you know, be careful. You know, you're looking for trouble. And I think that's what James Stewart's looking for, isn't he? He's looking for trouble because he's bored. Yeah, I think that was his sixth week stuck in there in that cast, and he's just bored, and he's looking for any kind of excitement. Yeah, that's it. Again, I was listening also to someone who's, a, I think they're a Hitchcock biographer, and they were talking about what he's seeing is a bit like us watching the cinema screen, mm. you know, because it's sort of passive entertainment. He's not really getting involved other than the salesman. So the film uh, kind of works like that as well. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a reflection of us as a, as a viewer. But one of the things I absolutely love about it is that, did you notice that other than that jazzy music, there's not really any score. Mm -hmm. All the music comes from people listening to things on their radio i think 
That's the impression yes. I got. Pretty darn near. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the score because yeah, it's essentially um, almost a slab of music concrete where you're using ambient no- noises from Greenwich Village to build your soundtrack. And you're right, the radios that are playing across the courtyard, one song I believe is Dean Martin's uh, That's Amore. Yeah. That's part of the whole ambiance that we as voyeurs are you know, surrounded by. And I really love how he did that. Oh, it's brilliant. And then we get Bing Crosby singing, To See You Is To Love You. Was that Crosby singing that? Yeah, that was Crosby, yeah. Yeah. Sounds lovely, and, yeah. And, and getting back to the one of the people across the courtyard that used the composer, mm. who's struggling to write a song, we can hear him writing the song throughout the whole film. It's a little bit like the Beatles get back where we see the process of songwriting, you know. And the process of him writing that song affects the other people in the courtyard. Absolutely, yeah. Particularly at the end. We will get mm-hmm. there, but yeah. And thanks for mentioning the Beatles. Good stuff. <laughs> I try to mention them as much as possible. Yeah, we get this lovely piano version of Amore, then we get um, Bing Crosby, as I said. And you kind of realize where To Know Her Is To Love Her probably came from as well. Could be, yeah. You know, because it's very, very similar. And then obviously the, the songwriter working on this song produces a score and then you hear someone practicing their scales they're singing along with the songwriter i think yes and then you get yeah this sort of ambient noise another thing i love is that you just get a little shot of the alley you know when they go through the alley and you can see life going on yeah that shot of the alley just the way this is the camera work is pacing to catch all these motions in this neighborhood going on and there's some very long sweeping camera movements that see what you just suggested. So you're seeing in front of the building, you know, we're looking at the back of the building. Well, how do we know what's going on in front of the building? It gives us that little sliver of the alley that not only shows you the street, but the bar across the street as well, which we'll get to. Yeah, you get the bar and then you just get little shots of people walking to and fro. Mm-hmm. I love that. Actually, I have a little bit of a story from Rear Window. I used to get um, occasional bouts of tonsillitis when I was younger. Mm-hmm partly because I used to smoke quite a lot as well. Don't do that anymore. I remember I'd, I'd been ill for about three or four days. And you know when you're really ill and, and you can't leave your house, you have that kind of spaced out feeling. You know, you haven't left your house for four or five days. And um, you are kind of in this bubble. <laughs> you like you stay in your room or whatever it is. And I remember after about four days, I, I'd also been sleeping a lot. And I had like some uh, like a two-hour nap in the afternoon or something. And I came downstairs, and this is when I was living with all my family. I was probably only about 17 or 18. And um, I actually thought it was 8 o'clock in the morning, but it was actually 8 o'clock at night because I was that spaced out. And this film was on, and I'd seen it, and I ended up watching it with my family. Mm. And it's funny how sometimes you just identify with things. And suddenly I just had this extra awareness of maybe how he felt. He's not ill as such, but he's injured. And I always remember that little shot of the alley. I love it. Mm-hmm. seeing the world go by because i was kind of like that i'd been in bed for four or five days and i'd occasionally look out my window at the street mm-hmm. you know and you just see a little snippet of life mm-hmm. by the way how many times would you say you've seen this film you know i i, I probably have seen it 25 times i've seen it on the big screen i think at least three times it's been re-released a couple times and I, there's a, a film house that used to play old films back in the 90s i used to go every week for those like two dollars it's so cheap but I've seen it at least 25 times. Yeah, I've probably seen it about the same, to be honest. I tended to watch films a lot. Did you ever do this, like record a film off the television and then just watch it to death? I mean, I was oh, yeah. terrible for that, you know? 
Well, that's how I first watched this. When I, I came home from college, they were showing um, North by Northwest in the, the lunch area in the evening. And I was studying for an exam. Mm. And I was not able to study for the exam. I just watched North by Northwest. So then I went home and my dad, who had been recording old films from television, yeah. he's the one that had Rear Window recorded. So I started watching the old films that he had recorded. Did you tend to watch old films when you were a kid? Or? Yeah, you didn't have much choice. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, like I was saying on Sundays, you typically had a, a black and white, like a serial type of film on, like a Charlie Chan or Mr. Moto or something. And after that, it was followed by a Technicolor film, The yeah. Feature. Yeah. So you didn't have a lot of new movies on during the daytime. It was all old movies. You know, I mean, they were on in the background if I wasn't watching them closely. They were there. Yeah, yeah I, I got into a 50s sci-fi when I was about mm. 12 or 13. But, you know, sometimes, I don't know what it was like where, where you grew up, but kids will sometimes make fun of you if you like old stuff, you know? Because, you know, when well, you're a kid, you, people are so focused on and everything has to be modern, right? You know, for the old films, I mean, most of us grew up watching that stuff because, like I said, that's all that was on. In those days, you didn't have 24-hour programming. I mean, you, the programming typically stopped around midnight. You might on the weekends have like a feature film, like a late show and a late, late show. And mm. then in the mornings, you didn't have any television until about 5.30 in the morning. Yeah. So I'm a, maybe, I'm a little older than you. So maybe it was just more normal for us kids to have watched that on television. Yeah, maybe. I was thinking when I was 12 or 13, I had a friend whose mother had a great, it was VHS in those days. She had original ones and then she'd tape stuff off the telly and, and I just developed, you know, a taste for it. But I don't remember anyone else at my school really doing that. And I used to, when I bought these 50s sci-fi ones, I used to have to hide them when I went to school and stuff because mm -hmm. people would make fun of me and go, oh, what are you watching that for, you know? Yeah, in uh, in high school, I wasn't watching old films much then so mm. i was listening to listening to old music mm. so that was one that was kind of similar you know you get kind of looked at strangely what do you listen mm. to that for what you don't like van halen you know <laughs> yeah i don't know it feels like kids always there's almost a stigma against absorbing anything that's not modern you know what i mean oh yeah but i i just lapped it up you know i used to love all these old films the more obscure the better as well just going back to the plot so Another interesting thing that happens is that uh, I think Lisa, Grace Kelly, is telling him, you know, oh, why are you looking out the window? You know, there's nothing going on. There's nothing happening with a salesman. What does she see that makes her interested in the case? Can you remember? Is it the trunk? Uh, yes, it is the trunk. So as the film switches from talking about the love story between James Stewart and Grace Kelly, all the while he's looking out the window and interested, he's not connecting the dots until yeah. that first night. And then he's telling her, and she's like not having any of it, because James Stewart is suggesting a murder happened, though he didn't see it. And then she's trying to dissuade him, saying, hey, no, that's private out there. You don't, doesn't mean anything. And then she starts to get sucked in. It's like um, the drama of what is across the courtyard is pulling her in. And it, it shifts from the discussion of their relationship, which seems to be at an impasse, to something equally or more sexy and more titillating what's going on across the courtyard and yeah. that titillation is what ultimately brings them closer together this might be my kind of overactive imagination but it also seemed like he became sexually interested in her <laughs> because she was interested in the case yeah you're not reading too much into it at all i think mm. the point of it is is that 
it is arousing to be a voyeur of something that you're not really a part of. And when she joins him in that is when he starts to get aroused by her. But you wonder, what's been going on in their relationship before he had a broken leg? I'm wondering. (laughs) Maybe I'm being too voyeuristic now, but you have to wonder. Like, he he seems a bit... uh... (laughs) Anyway, let's not go there. (laughs) (laughs) I I had a joke to tell, but I'm not going to go there either. Uh, If you want to at any point later, just throw it (laughs) in there. (laughs) And then we get uh, Doyle, uh, Wendell Corey. Again, a great character. I love the banter. He's skeptical. He's, I don't know, he's a little bit seedy in a way. Yeah. Wendell Corey was an actor that they tried to put over as a leading man. And he just wasn't good looking enough. But he's got this great, booming, deep voice. And he works better as a character actor. And his banter with James Stewart is just great. They could have done another film together. They were old war buddies. And that's how he pulls them in. You know, He's doing a favor for a buddy by coming over and checking out, is this really a murder? No cop would do that unless you knew him. Yeah, but I wrote down some great lines. He says, um, do you anything, Jeff? He goes, yeah, you might send me a good detective. (laughs) And then uh, Jeff says, are you interested in solving this case or making me look stupid? He goes, well, ideally both. Yeah, Yeah, so they're all buddies and they can rib each other that way and stick it to one another and not take it personally. Yeah, because Doyle kind of appears and reappears three or four times and every time he's like, yeah, what is it now? Yeah, and he he says something like, um, oh, "I'd like to explain this to my boss. Uh, I have a friend who's an amateur sleuth, and uh, he had a bit of a heavy dinner the other night." <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's very good, but he always kind of leaves the clinching evidence just as he's about to leave. He goes, "Oh yeah, by the way, because uh, <laughs> he's trying to smash uh, Jeff's bubble, isn't he?" Did you notice also as well? There's only one time where we see something that James Stewart doesn't see, and I'd forgotten about this. We do actually see the wife. Did I remember that, or was I dreaming? We see Thorwald and his wife leaving the apartment together. Correct. So there's a point in the voyeurism, which Stuart is now really getting sucked in. He dozes off at three in the morning. Mm. And then we, the audience, see Thorwald leave with his wife, presumably his wife, down the hallway. And he does not see that. Yeah, that's it. So he chucks that one in, which is, uh, that was good stuff. There's one funny bit as well. Uh, This weird thing about Jeff's bachelor lifestyle. I said he almost seems like a teenager sometimes. And Lisa decides to stay over. I thought it was a nice touch that she sort of packed light almost to impress him. To say, you know, I'm not materialistic. You know, I can pack with just a little suitcase. No problem. And then Jeff kind of has to check with his landlord that his girlfriend could stay over. Is that a thing in America? I don't know. Well, you know, realistically, I mean, certain hotels didn't care, but it it was a real Mm. thing. You see that it might be more of a a film, what would you Mm. call it? A a slight censorship with film where it was not proper for a woman to stay overnight at a man's place or for women to accept gentlemen callers. So that was a real thing. Yeah, there's a kind of prudishness, you're right, in films at that time, yes. Probably more for the audience's sake, you know, for the film censorship's sake than it was in real life, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I know. It always makes me laugh, though, the way audiences mm-hmm. had to be protected in those days. Mm-hmm. As if, like, who has sex then? Like, if <laughs> you don't see it, like, uh, how do you think you got here? <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, there was a weird prudishness. So, yeah, Lisa is, is interested now. Then we get to really the key, almost the key line of the whole story delivered by Doyle. And that's a secret private world you're looking into there. People do lots of things that they couldn't possibly explain. And, you know, he's right. So uh, let me give you the, the slightly tough question. What are the ethics of spying on someone's apartment? 
even if you either prove that they didn't kill someone or you prove that they did. What do you reckon? Well, I guess you can take it to an, an extreme. So Stuart is bored. He doesn't have much else to do. So I think it's forgivable that he is spying. He's not, well, he's spying because he does bring out the binoculars and then the long lens when he wants to find out if his hunches are correct or not. So I, I think, you know, if I'm living in an apartment like that, if I leave my shades open, that's on me. You know, I think there's a, a point where, like, you, you see Stuart when they say, hey, the shades are open, he quickly turns his wheelchair to see immediately because he can't yeah. not take that in. Yeah. Mary's getting a little bit too obsessive about it. Yeah. Obviously, there's a bit of suspension of disbelief because you probably wouldn't have that good a view, to be honest. I don't know. I've never lived in one of those courtyards, so maybe you do. But that's, that's a good point. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's obviously a bit of a device going on. But um, I think I'd probably forgive him the long lens purely because he's got it there anyway because he's a photographer. Maybe I shouldn't forgive him that, but I will. But yeah, the interesting ethical question really is that if you prove that a man killed his wife, then you are solving a crime or you're helping the police solve a crime. Then you've got the idea of the government, of course, <laughs> spying mm-hmm. on us. And I think people have always suspected that happened. But a few years ago, you know, it came out, this thing about the potential to read emails. And yeah. people are now kind of realizing that Facebook and things like that, you know, they are... I wouldn't say they're primarily set up to take people's data, but that's a big part of what they're doing, let's be honest, you know. So rather than, uh, I don't know, solve it, I'll just leave it for the audience there, I think, this ethical thing. Because the government, was, the famous line is, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. Then nothing yeah, that happen. used to work for me, but not as much anymore. <laughs> uh, well, we're kind of public figures now, aren't we, in this strange <laughs> online world. We're kind of out yeah, there, aren't we? We're putting ourselves out there, you know. So we are, yeah. We get what we deserve. <laughs> one point i did want, want to make about this fascination with other people's lives have you ever like uh been on a train and you look out the window and you pass a hundred houses mm-hmm. do you ever think to yourself all those stories there's all those lives going on inside those houses and i remember talking to someone about yeah. that it's fascinating isn't it I mean, you just in the world i mean how many hundreds thousands of stories are going on that we don't know anything about you know yeah it's pretty fascinating the theme I was sort of talking about earlier was this, this kind of thing about passively observing people's lives but not really getting involved. So there's a point where Doyle seems to have convinced them that there's no murder. Mm-hmm. And again, Grace Kelly has this great line, look at us sitting around with long faces plunged into despair because we find out a man didn't kill his wife. You know, we should be happy. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, that's a great line. And that's Hitchcock is checking, I guess, the feelings of the audience because he's, he's lured them in and we've become voyeurs. And then we have to check ourselves like Stuart and, and Grace Kelly do to say, well, we, what we're seeing is not reality. You know, this, anything could be happening there. Let's take a step back. Yeah. So Stuart and Kelly do take the step back, but they step right back in, you know, very quickly after. Yeah, they put the shutters down and then they hear a scream. And then obviously the, the dog has been killed. Strangled, I think. Yeah. Strangled, yeah. Oh, horrible. And then we get, you know, another really key part of the story, which is, um, like I said, we've, so we've got this couple and um, they send their dog down in a basket from the balcony mm-hmm. and then the dog jumps back in the basket. So you've got some comedy value. Yes, and that couple sleeps outside on that porch because it's so warm in the oh, summertime. And then at night it starts to rain. The rain becomes somewhat of a character in the film. 
That's and it. you see them scrambling to get the mattress in and the, the alarm clock falls three stories and the guy falls in. It's just very, some very good comic relief. Yeah, well, this is Hitchcock, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know if this is partly an editing thing, but he knows when to sucker the audience in and then deliver whatever it wants is he wants to deliver, you know. But I think as audiences, we love being manipulated. I think that's very true. And then he, he gives us some breaks as well. You know, we get sucked in and then he gives us a breather and then he sucks you back in. Absolutely, yeah. It's this sort of push and pull thing he's got going on. So then, yeah, this is really interesting. So all the neighbours are getting on with whatever they're doing. I think the songwriter's having a party or something. And suddenly they hear the scream, and then, of course, everybody does what you see people do in the street. Everybody just starts gawping, as we'd say in England. Mm. Everyone just starts looking. They don't really help. They don't get involved. They just have this instinct to look. And this woman just starts screaming at the neighbours and, and some of the lines are great you know real neighbours like each other speak to each other they care if anyone lives or dies and she's got this wonderful uh, New York accent as well I thought that was great mm -hmm. so uh, this idea we have now that particularly in cities people don't really have anything to do with their neighbours and this kind of private world do you think it's going against human nature do you, I mean by nature we're gregarious aren't we yeah, I think so. I think most people need people, and I, I think that's why cities have emerged. It took a lot longer time for suburbs to emerge, and then as things spread out, you have people that like more space and more privacy. I think in the city, the, you can get a fair amount of privacy, but I, I've always liked the hustle and bustle and the energy of a city. Hmm. And you can still get all that and still be extremely private. Yeah. You know, I, and I think that the idea, I grew up in a, what I would call an old suburb. And there was great community there yeah. because it was suburban enough, but yet it had its own, it was a city, a small city of about 20,000. And um, mm. that was a community. So you go start getting much bigger. The community seems to go away. There's the pockets of those communities are much more narrow, you know? Yeah. Like in the case of this film, I mean, Greenwich Village is pretty highly populated. The arts community, what a vibrant place to be in the fifties, man, what a great place to be. But yeah. um you know, Stewart likes it there. He could afford to live in a nicer place, but he chooses to live in, I guess, the artistic area of the city or the ethnic area, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I've kind of always done the same, actually. I think if I lived in a, a rich area, not that I can afford to, but I think if I ever did, I'd be bored, to be honest. I like those kind of earthy, I don't know, more working class districts, I suppose. I've always lived in those places in London, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just a bit more going on, and I don't know, it's a bit less predictable i don't know it's funny isn't it because this is if you believe the depiction of greenwich village i mean this is about seven or eight years before bob dylan turns up and correct you can't quite imagine i don't know james stewart and bob dylan in the same i mean james mm. stewart's character well, <laughs> Bob Dylan. Is, I, that's like, the hollywood element of 1950s filmmaking which looks yeah. you know when i say it looks technicolor <laughs> i mean it looks unreal unrealistic so it, it probably wasn't quite that colorful yeah. i'm in a bit of artistic license obviously but mm -hmm. we kind of love that as well just to go back to that thing about um you're saying about community it's very easy though to lose that and then maybe people do start to get a bit obsessive about their privacy and maybe i've become a bit guilty of that because i grew up not a very small town it's probably about fifty thousand people but i used to know all my neighbors you know and um the old cliche of you know leaving your back door open and stuff we yeah, had a bit of that where I grew up, but I seem to have been really conditioned out of that. And I think having the online option as well, you know, I mean, I would love to meet you in person. I really genuinely hope we meet in person. Yeah. 
But it's quite possible we could go our whole lives. We could do 100 podcasts together and never meet. It's a strange world now because the online option gives you that option of meeting, but at this weird distance. But I guess we're in different countries. We're quite far away from each other, so that explains some of it. Yeah, I've got a, a side business with a guy I met online about 12 years ago. And we only met once in person one evening because I was on a business trip in his area. We've never met other than that one time. We've been in business together for 12 years. So it's really kind of funny how the community I have with him is just that. I mean, it's a very small, narrow community. That seems very strange because you could have quite a close relationship. It's a bit like radio in a way, isn't it? I mean, there's so much more that the eyes pick up. You know, there's quite a lot of information there with sight that I like to rely on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so where have we got to? We're getting towards the end of the plot here. So um, there's a point where Lisa and Stella, the nurse, kind of take over. I think Jeff notices something about the earth where the dog was sniffing around. Jeff writes uh, Lars Thorwald, who's the, the salesman, writes him a note, and Lisa sends it. And as we said earlier, you know, Lisa's really getting into it now. She's found something and I think she's genuinely into it. She's not just doing it to win James Stewart's heart. And we get this nice thing that we've obviously seen in loads of films where she delivers the note. I guess she puts it under the door or something, and then you see Thorwald come towards the door. Kind of like a two-shot, but with two people doing two different things. And I'm I'm not sure whether that, whether that had really been done too many times. It's hard to say, but it's obviously been done a lot since. And we get this great shot where uh, Lisa comes back and, and she's very excited. And then you get this great shot of James Stewart just looking really like, oh, wow, I like this girl now. <laughs> He's like looking at her lovingly with a very content, relaxed love because she is joining him in his adventure. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So then Jeff uh, calls him up, lures him out of his apartment, and then... Uh, I think Lisa was supposed to climb up, but then she climbs into his window, into the apartment, and Jeff's like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. And while this is all going on, uh, we got this kind of subplot with Miss Lonely Hearts, who started off having imaginary dinners, if you remember that. Yeah, if I could uh, just interject here. Of course, yeah. One of my favorite scenes in all of films is the one you just mentioned. So as Jimmy Stewart is getting to know his neighbors by just watching them, there's a beautiful scene where Lisa brings dinner for him and they're not getting along very well. Lisa's setting up for dinner and James Stewart is looking out the window and Miss Lonely Hearts is having this imaginary date and she's sitting down and pouring wine for him and she's picking up the glass to toast her date and Stewart is kind of doing the same. He toasts her. She's not drinking alone, but she's drinking with a man who is toasting her back. And Hitchcock does this with no dialogue. And you see Lisa setting up the table behind Stuart as you cut back to Stuart. So it, it's just a wonderful piece of filmmaking. Hmm. And uh, Miss Lonely Hearts then just realizes the folly of her fantasy and just starts crying. Yeah, it's, it's just really touching. And I think later on she, she brings a young guy back and he comes on a bit strong. Yeah, well, before he, when she does hmm. start crying, hmm. you know, that's when, you know, James Stewart kind of gets self-conscious. Conscious. He says, you know... Maybe Doyle was right. Some of that is private stuff out there that we're looking at. And he just encroached on it. And he's aware of it. But he watches her again in the scenario you just described with the young guy. Yeah, I feel like if he he could help any of them, he probably would. Well, I was going to say he's a hero of the film, but I suppose Lisa and Stella almost turn out to be the heroines of the film in a way. 
but uh, he seems like a, an all right guy you know he's a bit he's a bit voyeuristic but he's a photographer you know and uh actually i was having a a talk on my john lennon podcast about fred seaman you know you obviously know him people that don't know he was john lennon's personal assistant in the last couple of years of john lennon's life and he was apparently right making a diary while he was there but then it turned out he was a journalism major and um my guest on that show was saying that when 9-11 happened she had a boyfriend at that time who was a film major and he started filming it and uh this is something we've actually touched on on the other podcast he wasn't filming it because he thought it was a nice thing that was happening absolutely not but there's an instinct and of course we kind of need journalists and photographers because over the years they've taken amazing photos that have given us snapshots of, of major events you know yeah i think people need to record history and some people mm. maybe need it more or they i think they realize that something important is going on in front of their eyes and they want to record it in some fashion mm. i think seaman may have realized maybe his motives were to write a book but in the case of the the 9-11 thing obviously that was something spectacular going on you know the yeah. instinct is maybe record it i mean if you you know if you're studying film like i say it, it's just kind of an instinct Go back to Miss Lonely Hearts. Yeah, so she she's had this bad experience with this young guy and she's uh, going to kill herself and she stopped from it by listening to the songwriter who's finished his song or is on the way to finishing it. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a lovely moment, yeah. So they they kind of got this subplot right in the middle. I think it's even just as Lisa's going in the apartment, if I remember it right. So Jeff and Stella get involved with Miss Lonely Hearts here because they are looking through the long focus lens and she lays out these pills and Stella being a nurse knows what those pills are. She's like, oh, call the police because she's going to kill herself. So the police get called and as he's waiting for the police to respond, Lisa gets caught in the apartment by the bad guy and he starts to assault her essentially. And that's how the cops, he's already on the phone with the cops who said, get here quickly you know woman in the back he gives the address a lot going on in that little couple minutes there if you notice the police arrived in literally about 20 seconds but that's very clever what you said because they're actually called for a different reason because there's no way the the cops could have responded and saved her so having the cops called in advance on another issue they're already on their way that worked perfectly but you know, in the fifties, the cops probably turned up a little earlier now than, than these days. Yeah, about twenty seconds. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> was it twenty? I didn't count. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, something like that. No, but that's that thing that films do, isn't it? Someone will come to someone's house or something and have a cup of tea, or so, and then you realise it's actually about two minutes of screen time, and then they leave. So it's it's a kind of clever thing they do of playing with time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think you're, we're so suckered in, suckered in is not the right word, drawn into this plot that good filmmaking kind of get away with anything almost, you know? So, yeah, as you said, Lars Thorwald sees her, and then they do this other clever thing where you see Grace Kelly pointing to the wedding ring, and James Stewart's got the long lens, and then Thorwald sees her and then sees James Stewart. Then he appears in James Stewart's apartment. Another another thing that's quite funny, a bit of a dispensary of disbelief, he can just walk into James Stewart's apartment. Well, you know, one of the things I did notice, having seen this film many times, is that mm. apartment is often left open because he can't walk up and lock it. Uh, so people yeah, right. don't know. And, I mean, I would never leave apartment unlocked in Greenwich Village, even in the 50s, but it looked like he did. Because Lisa would just walk in. She didn't have a key. Yeah. I mean, joking aside, what I was saying earlier, 
I remember when I was a kid, we did leave our mm-hmm. door unlocked, and uh, probably not when everyone was out. I think that's a different thing. We'd have it unlocked where we were in, and people would just come in, you know, the neighbours and stuff. But yeah, I can't imagine that ever happening now. So Thorwald uh, comes in. I thought this was quite interesting. James Stewart's almost using the flashbulb as a to defend himself. Yes. That was a really interesting idea. I don't know who came up with that. I had a little bit of a problem with that. I mean, it, it seemed like if I'm Lars Thorwald, I'm just going to bull rush him. But the flashbulb does a couple of things. It, it stalls the bad guy briefly here and there. And it also is bright light showing into the courtyard, which is where Lisa and the cops end up coming. Yeah. So it's also kind of an alarm. So it has a couple of different purposes. And, you know, Thorwald does get them anyway. And then yeah, obviously Stewart nearly gets killed mm. for his efforts. But the point in the film where Thorwald knows he's being watched, he knows who's watching him. And then Thorwald turns the tables on Stewart and goes after Stewart, not knowing that he's incapacitated or in a, in a wheelchair, unable to move. So yeah. it was really kind of interesting how those tables got turned. This one bit I really loved where he's called Thorwald. And he says, you know, did you get my note and everything? And then he's James Stewart's phone rings and he thinks it's Doyle. No, sorry, he's just called Doyle. And his phone rings, he, he says, Doyle, I think he's going to... And then there's that really tense silence because you realise Thorwald's on the other end of the line. But it's when he suddenly realises and it all goes quiet. That's yeah. fantastic. Mm-hmm. That was interesting what you said with the red light because, uh, again, I was watching it last night and that flashbulb, that sort of red light that goes off, that was a device they just put in there, but it works as an alarm. That's very clever. I wonder if they meant to do that. They must have yeah, chosen it for that and, reason. Yeah, I think when they show, when that red light, in other words, Lars Thorwald is seeing a red light because he's blinded by mm. a bright white light. And the result is this kind of blinding redness that he can't, it uh, stops him in his tracks briefly. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that was pretty cool. That's a really cool effect. So Thorwald attacks Jimmy Stewart. The police pull him off. Jimmy Stewart falls. He kind of gets half caught. Mm-hmm. And then we're, yeah, we're at the end. And then uh, he does, he says to Lisa, you know, I'm I'm proud of you. It's a nice line because he's very impressed by everything she's done, climbing into the bad guy's apartment. And then uh, Hitchcock does a thing which he very often does, even in a film that has dark elements. He gives you a little bit of lightness at the end. So we see Jeff has now got two broken legs. And we do this thing where Lisa is pretending to read an adventure book and then switches to Vanity Fair, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And I didn't notice as well the song playing. Is, is that Lisa or is it Mona Lisa? Is that the same song? I think it's an original song called Lisa. Well, that's right. Because there's Mona Lisa earlier, which I'd forgotten about. Yes. Yeah, and that's it, really. Now, one of the things that we talk about sometimes, and I've, I appear on another couple of podcasts, and when we do old films, we always talk about in those days when people didn't have video recorders and there was no, obviously this is 60 years or 50 years before podcasts, I don't imagine that people really reflected on the film in terms of, say, what the future might be. But in this age where we do like to overanalyze, obviously in those days, you know, this would have been a great night out of the cinema because you get suspense, you get comedy, and then you get a nice ending, so everyone's happy. But what, um, what do you think might happen with Jeff and Lisa? Uh, well, pure speculation. It, it is left open. Obviously, it's a happy ending. Mm. They get the bad guy. James Stewart is in Lisa's arms, I think, as I recall. And um, it seems like the relationship would carry forward. But whether they would marry or not, I don't know. If you project a year forward, are they just back to, you know, he's off in Budapest or Cairo with doing all these magazine photography 
And she, I don't, I still don't see how she could go with him. I mean, she did show that she is up for some adventure. She mm. proved that in the film. And he would have to prove that maybe he can go into her world a little bit, uh, meeting her halfway. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Do it. Meeting in the middle, yeah. I mean, I like to think people can change. You know, I've seen huge changes in people. And uh, I wonder if we're a little bit conditioned to think that we are stuck in these we're stuck in the, the class that we're born into, particularly in England. It's much stronger in England than America. Yeah, I've always understood that. I, not, that's not mm. so here. I mean, there's a lot more mm. flexibility between the classes here, and mm. uh, anything can happen and does. I mean, it's a lot better. It's changed a lot in England. I mean, in the 50s, it was just terrible. I mean, mm. you had your place and that was it. But um, there's a bit more flexibility now. Any final takeaways? I think we've done it a bit of justice here. Yeah, the one of the things on the last point you made, and we didn't really talk about this, is that every single apartment that James Stewart is looking into across the courtyard is a potential scenario for him and Lisa. So you've got the newlywed couple, mm-hmm. the insatiable sex that the wife wants. You've got, and on the other spectrum, you've got Lars Thawart who kills his wife. You've got the childless couple on the third floor. You've got the composer who's unmarried, and then you, on the opposite end, you've got Miss Torso, who's the young dancer, beautiful, who's not attached, and not everybody, all these guys are after her. So I always thought that was a real fascinating way that Hitchcock showed us the scenarios where Jeff and Lisa could potentially be in. And I have no idea where they would wind up. <laughs> That's really interesting, yeah. Does Miss Torso have a boyfriend who's been away or something and yes. he's a lot shorter than her isn't he yeah, yeah he, a bit of a comic another relief, bit though. of comedy you've got yeah. all these men distinguished men going after the beautiful blonde who's a dancer and she's not interested in any of them and we find out in the end it's this little five foot five guy yeah. comes over from the army and she's loved him oh stanley <laughs> you know? oh, i love that yeah she's in love with stanley i think miss lonely hearts gets together with a songwriter yeah he's playing the record for her you have no idea how much this music has meant to me, not knowing maybe that it saved her life. Yeah, it's nice without because it's not too schmaltzy, because unfortunately the kind of Richard Curtis era, you know, of, of those British films like Love Actually, which isn't bad. And yesterday, you know, I have a great fondness for that one. <laughs> yeah, because as, as the scenarios play out across the courtyard, you know, the composer and Miss Lonely Hearts get together, but you have the newlyweds, they're already arguing because mm. the the wife says, "Well, had I known you lost your you lost your job, I don't know we would have got married." He's like, "Oh, honey." And then you've got the childless couple with the dog. They get the new dog. Yeah. So it's, it's all these things going on. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. It doesn't just wrap everything up in in, in a parcel because I, I think those kind of Richard Curtis written ones, those British films, they have it's just a bit too neat in the end. Yeah. yeah, this 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 does it. It's neat in the end, but it's it does it in a humorous way, which you Hitchcock completely gets away with. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. I hadn't thought about that. That those lives that could be the way they end up. There was a talk of a sequel. I don't know if they were actually going to do it, or they just someone had the idea that years later Grace Kelly kills uh, James Stewart. And someone's watching her from <laughs> the apartment. It's not a bad idea, yeah. Not bad at all. Well, the thing, the storyline that people have connected is actually the movie that came up prior to this with Grace Kelly and Ray Milan, which is Dial M for Murder, which uh. the Broken Dawn tennis star does plan to do away with his younger wife. So there, there, some people have suggested, well, would James Stewart have become that character where eventually he would have wanted to get rid of her? Maybe not murder her, but... Uh, interesting, yeah. There was a remake of this. 
with uh, Christopher Reeve, of course, I, mean, I guess a lot of people would know, tragically mm. fell from a horse and was paralysed from the neck mm. down. Awful. And then they, um, I thought it was really a nice gesture. So they remade the film with him, mm -hmm. obviously in his wheelchair, for real, playing the James Stewart character. Have you seen that one? Or? No, I typically stay away from remakes of that sort. Remakes in general, oh. I typically just don't bother... Um, and I, I hadn't heard too much about that one. That was a made-for-television movie, I believe. Yeah, I think it is available. I might just watch, uh, I don't know, 10 minutes of it just for curiosity. But yeah, I know what you mean, because there was a remake of 12 Angry Men, which is mm. really one of my all-time. I, I have a flick chart now, which has got about 1,500 films. I think that's about number 20 or something. So that's oh. well up there with my favorites. And they remade it, and it's not too bad. I mean, they had George C. Scott, and he, he's always going to be quite good, but... It just seems unnecessary, but I think it was a nice gesture in this case, you know. I think it was made as a gesture to Christopher Reeve, presumably. I think um, so, too, yeah. But, I mean, this is really perfection almost, isn't it? I mean, the original, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the script, there's not one word wasted. I mean, every mm -hmm. camera movement is necessary, and it tells more than if the camera didn't move. It's just a brilliant film, and it's about, I forget the time. Hold on, let me check here. That's the one thing I like about some of these older movies is it's 112 minutes it can pack a lot of punch in uh, a relatively short time. Movies today like this, they're past two and a half hours. You just find that self-indulgent. I think it's holding the hot audience hostage too long. You should be able to say what you have to say in about two hours, you know what I mean? Pretty economical, yeah. All right, and the last thing I wanted to say was um, to do with award nominations. Now, Hitchcock famously never won a Best Director Oscar, he got an honorary one, which nowadays is seen as a token. You know, it's like a pat on the back. Well done, son. Hitchcock was not impressed with that. <laughs> really? Is that right? I've never seen the, I'm sure there's footage of it, but. Yeah, he was not really thrilled to be there for that. Right, right. Anyway, this film got, uh, so he was nominated, adapted screenplay. And we should point out, in fact, this was based on a short story that didn't have any of the love interest and also didn't have any of the characters, you know, Miss Torso, Miss Lonely Hearts, etc. True. Yeah, like many of Hitchcock's films, it was based on a true story or part of it was the germination for the film. The story it was called It Had to Be Murder by Cornell Woolrich. That's it. And a screenplay, John Michael Hayes. And it was uh, nominated for cinematography and sound. Uh, I did hear actually on one of the documentaries that a lot of people thought that Hitchcock in reality could have had screenwriting credits as well for a lot of his films, but he just never bothered trying to claim that. You know, he was I very, very involved. In the editing as well. I mean, the way he shot films, you could only edit them one way hmm. because he was, his background was as an illustrator. So he was a storyboard guy. So he had everything really nailed down. Yes. And as a guy who I, I myself do video production, when I do that, I mean, it really moves things along quickly. And it, it's, it's a really great way to make film because everything's so thought out. Yeah, apparently he was very, very well prepared and they didn't have a lot. The stuff they didn't use was almost nothing. I think it was like one reel, you know, it should have been 10 minutes in those days. Pretty much, yeah. Because you hear about all these, you hear about a lot of films. I mean, I mean, the most extreme example is probably Apocalypse Now. I, I mean, I, I'd see all that footage. Same with Get Back, as mm -hmm. we were saying. Yeah. I was kind of joking when I said Get Back was too short, eight hours. But, uh, no, I know, I know. Yeah. Only half joking. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think Hitchcock never won a, a Best Director Oscar then? Well, my understanding is the thriller suspense film, I suppose this comes from the 30s through the 40s, it was in America anyway, it was never viewed. It was a little bit like pulp writing or it was a little bit looked down upon. 
And I do know that there was the film Saboteur from 1944, no, 42. The original mm-hmm. people he wanted were Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. And they very politely stepped down from that and, you know, were happy to do their more romantic comedies, I suppose, which had more prestige. So I think the genre of suspense was built up by Hitchcock himself. And by the mid-50s, it had built up to where he did get nominated for this. He was only nominated for five films. I'm going to rattle them off here. Yeah, cool. Rebecca in 1940, Lifeboat 44, Spellbound in 1945, Rear Window in 54, and then Psycho in 1960 losing every time and in 54 he lost to Ilya kazan for on the waterfront which uh, really swept a lot of the, the oscars that year so he always had if you look he always had great competition but never could bring it home that's interesting because I, I i don't really like spellbound at all and i don't like lifeboat particularly they're not bad I, well i like lifeboat uh, i think and you know it's a war film or is it? <laughs> uh, mm. But Spellbond, I think, is one of his weaker films. My favorite part is the Salvador Dali dream sequence, which I wish had been, his original vision was way more complex. I wish he could have done that. But I'm, I'm not a big Gregory Peck fan, mm. and I think he's not a good Hitchcock leading man. Yeah, I mean, I think in those days, psychology and, uh, I don't know, psychiatry, if you like, the analysis of things wasn't what it is now. You know, it was very, very unsophisticated, although... Yeah. I think Hitchcock was a master of human psychology. I don't know where he got it from, but he, he Must seemed... be that, that Catholic upbringing. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Have you ever read uh, any books about Alfred Hitchcock, any biographies? Yeah, a guy by the name of Donald Spottle wrote a biography on him, which I wrote, read many years ago. That's it, The uh, Dark the dark Side of Genius, isn't that one? Dark Side of Genius, uh, yeah. uh, book, um, The Art of Alfred Hitchcock is one also by Spottle that goes into every film. Mm. The one I would recommend to everybody who's a Hitchcock fan is Francois Truffaut, Uh, who uh, over 10 years recorded Hitchcock and interviewed him. Hitchcock very seldom allowed interviews, and Truffaut was a fan, and he developed a relationship with Hitchcock and recorded audio recordings of him over 10 years, and it was put into this book. I think I've heard the audio version of that. Maybe not it's the whole book, but a good few hours, yeah. Another one here, The Silent Scream, Alfred Hitchcock's soundtrack. It's by Elizabeth Weiss. This right. is a book that's out of print, but it's um, it's on his um, soundtracks and the music that he brought. Yeah. Oh, we forgot to mention uh, his cameo, of course. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. What's he doing? He's in the musician's apartment. What's he doing? Yeah, so the composer is writing, and the composer looks back at Hitchcock, who's adjusting a clock on the mantle or something. They're talking. Oh, that's a... Now, the, guy, the actor that plays the composer is uh, Ross... Bagdasarian. For those people who are familiar with the Chipmunks, that's the guy who started the Chipmunks. Believe it or not, <laughs> so that's the guy in the film. Don't think about that too much when you're watching Rear Window because that will break yeah, the exactly. illusion a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now the Hitchcock cameos are fantastic because it's a little bit risky in a way because you could really lose the film. If I think, did he tend to put himself in there quite early? I feel like he did because yes. obviously, if you if you know if you if you're having this sort of this plot and we're really invested an hour and a half in and suddenly he turns up. I mean, that would, yeah, this is his latest in terms of this particular one in rear window is his latest. He probably turns up and he's it's halfway through the picture and it's, most people miss him because it's so innocuous, but let's turn up like in the first, in some cases, very first scenes. Yeah. I think on YouTube, someone's done a compilation of all his cameos. So that's worth watching. One of my favorite ones, actually strangers on a train. Obviously, you know, you've got this dual thing, you know, with the two murders. 
Mm-hmm. There's lots of uh, motifs of you even see the, the the tracks, the railway tracks crisscrossing, which is really yes. clever. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as Guy, who's um, Farley Granger, is getting off the train, Hitchcock's getting on. He's carrying a double bass. Yes, I thought it was fantastic. You know, carrying on yeah. the in Hitchcock. It's usually a slightly humorous thing that he's doing, whether he's walking a dog or he's, yeah, he, it's a slight bit of humor, which is always nice as well. Yeah, but it's important. It's important to put it at the beginning because, like I say, even in this film as well, when James Stewart's watching The Neighbors, mm-hmm. it's quite comedic to begin with. I think with suspense, what I've learned a bit from Hitchcock is you've got to sucker the audience in, give them a mm-hmm. sort of a false sense of security. Just one more example, in Rope, I think he turns up right at the beginning because Rope, of course, begins with the strangulation. Yes, that Rope is similar to Rwindo in that it all happens really in one room or one apartment. Yeah. And Hitchcock in Rope appears underneath the opening credits. Appeared Well, and he makes an interesting cameo on Lifeboat. But What is it? Oh, tell me, tell me, what is it? Well, I mean, he obviously that that's another constrained set where the entire film takes place on a lifeboat. Mm. So how does Hitchcock make... An appearance other you know floating dead in the water which was thought of but he he appears in a newspaper ad, advertisement for losing weight i haven't seen that film for years yeah and in in uh dial m he turns up in a in a class reunion photo yes he's a guy that ray Milland hires to kill his wife he knew him from university so you see hitchcock there very very clever yeah all right i think we'll leave it there thanks for doing this Maybe you had told me it was your favorite film of all time. I don't know. Obviously, we chose it because you liked it. But yeah, yeah, it's it's my favorite film of all time. I've got many. Yeah. This is just a one that's very easy for me to say that. I think you were saying you'd seen it on a big screen. I would love to yeah. do that. The closest I came actually, I used to live in Madrid, and I was at the Modern Arts in the Modern mm-hmm. Art Gallery, and uh, for some reason I don't know why, but we I was with some friends and we went into a room and it was playing on a big screen. Quite a big screen, anyway, like mm-hmm. a flat screen. So I've had a bit of an experience of that, but hopefully it will come around again. I guess we've missed the, whatever, what would it be, 60th? I guess we might have to wait for the 70th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing it on the big screen and, and noticing inside of his apartment, everything is so much bigger. So you see his apartment, it's like a guy's apartment. It, there's mm-hmm. nothing fancy. It's a little more disheveled than what I see on the small screen. Because when you see it on the small screen and Grace Kelly's in it, she just fills so much of the, the, with her beauty. Yeah. On the big screen, you can see more detail. Tell us a little bit more about Stuart. All right. Okay. Well, look, thanks for doing this. Like I said, so your channel is Pop Goes to 60s. This is probably going to come out towards the end of March, maybe a couple of weeks. We're recording this on the 7th. What have you been uh, doing on the channel recently and what's coming up? Well, we're in the aftermath of the Peter Jackson Get Back film, so I just did an album that never was that includes a lot more unreleased music from the Get Back sessions. Everybody's been obsessed with the length of the film and that we didn't get enough film. I'd say we didn't get enough music, so I did Mm. that. I'm going to be working on some other bands. One of the big series I'm going to do is going to be on The Birds. And uh, got plenty more Beatles stuff coming. And a lot, a lot of more '60s band histories as well. Excellent. I'll put a link in the show notes. We did a, like I said, we did a three-parter on Get Back, which was mm-hmm. lots of fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm having some Get Back fatigue at the moment, but yeah, same here. I had yeah. that uh, done for quite a while, but yeah, I had to get out the door. I just got it done, so yeah. All right, and I will definitely get you on in the future as well. We'll cook up something. Maybe we could do the killing, the that Kubrick one. 
Yeah, oh, I'd love that one. Yeah, because I guess there's more obvious Kubrick ones to, to do, but I probably will never do The Shining just because there's my friend Rob Ager, you may have heard of. I mean, he does incredible film analysis, and he, you know everyone's done The Shining at this point, so I don't know what else I'd have to say. But... I haven't listened to too many film um, podcasts, but um, as far as the killing goes, not, nothing is, is as good as a film noir caper gone awry. You know, those are oh, yeah. always no, they are. And I mean, Kubrick is is unique in many ways, but just the span of genres. I mean, he didn't make that many films. It's sort of 13 no. or 14, depending if you include all the early ones. And I guess he made two war films. But other than that, almost every film is a different genre. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love The Killing because it's got this commentary that you wouldn't expect. It, it, so it becomes almost like a documentary. Yes, it does. It's yeah. a very, very unique film. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I will get you on for that at some point in the future. And good luck with the channel. And, uh, yep, all the best. And thanks again for doing this. Thanks, Anthony. Appreciate it. If you'd like to support my work across my three podcasts, which are Film Gold, Glass Onion on John Lennon, and Life and Life Only, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Anthony Rotuno where you can make a one-off donation or take out a monthly or yearly subscription which will give you early access and bonus podcast content. Thanks again for listening.